Section 6, Part 1 of Popular Tales from the Norse. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Popular Tales from the Norse by Sir George Webb Dasent. Section 6, Introduction Part 4, Norse Popular Tales, Part 1. The preceding observations will have given a sufficient account of the mythology of the Norsemen and of the way in which it fell. They came from the east and brought that common stock of tradition with them. Settled in the Scandinavian peninsula, they developed themselves through heathenism, Romanism, and Lutheranism in a locality little exposed to foreign influence, so that even now the Daleman in Norway or Sweden may be reckoned among the most primitive examples left of peasant life. We should expect, then, that these popular tales, which, for the sake of those ignorant in such matters, it may be remarked, had never been collected or reduced to writing till within the last few years, would present a faithful picture of the national consciousness, or perhaps, to speak more correctly, that half-consciousness out of which the heart of any people speaks in its abundance. Besides those old-world affinities and primeval parallelisms, besides those dreamy recollections of its old home in the East, which we have already pointed out, we should expect to find its later history, after the great migration, still more distinctly reflected, to discover heathen gods masked in the garb of Christian saints, and thus to see a proof of our assertion above that a nation more easily changes the form than the essence of its faith, and clings with a toughness which endures for centuries to what it has once learned to believe. In all mythologies, the trait of all others which most commonly occurs is that of the descent of the gods to earth, where in human form they mix among mortals, and occupy themselves with their affairs, either out of a spirit of adventure or to try the hearts of men. Such a conception is shocking to the Christian notion of the omnipotence and omnipresence of God, but we question if there be not times when the most pious and perfect Christian may not find comfort and relief from a fallacy which was a matter of faith in less enlightened creeds, and over which the Apostle, writing to the Hebrews, throws the sanction of his authority, so far as angels are concerned. Hebrews 13.1, Let brotherly love continue, be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Nor could he have forgotten those words of the men of Lystra, The gods come down to us in the likeness of men, and how they called Barnabas Jupiter, and himself Mercury, because he was the chief speaker. Classical mythology is full of such stories. These wanderings of the gods are mentioned in the Odyssey, and the sanctity of the rites of hospitality and the dread of turning a stranger from the door took its origin from a fear lest the wayfaring man should be a divinity in disguise. According to the Greek story, Orion owed his birth to the fact that the childless Harius, his reputed father, had once received unawares Zeus, Poseidon, and Hermes, or to call them by their Latin names, Jupiter, Neptune, and Mercury. In the beautiful story of Philemon and Baucis, Jupiter and Mercury reward the aged couple who had so hospitably received them by warning them of the approaching deluge. The fables of Phaedrus and Aesop represent Mercury and Demeter as wandering and enjoying the hospitality of men. In India it is Brahma and Vishnu who generally wander. In the Edda, Odin, Loki, and Honir thus roam about, or Thor, Thialfi, and Loki. Sometimes Odin appears alone as a horseman, who turns in at night to the smith's house, and gets him to shoe his horse, a legend which reminds us at once of the master smith. 
Sometimes it is Thor with his great hammer who wanders thus alone. Now let us turn from heathenism to Christian times, and look at some of these old legends of wandering gods in a new dress. Throughout the Middle Age, it is our blessed Lord and St. Peter that thus wander, and here we see that half-digested heathenism to which we have alluded. Those who may be shocked at such tales in this collection as the Master Smith and Gertrude's Bird must just remember that these are most purely heathen traditions, in which the names alone are Christian. And if it be any consolation to any to know the fact, we may as well state at once that this adaptation of new names to old beliefs is not peculiar to the Norsemen, but is found in all the popular tales of Europe. Germany was full of them, and there St. Peter often appears in a snappish, ludicrous guise, which reminds the reader versed in Norse mythology of the tricks and pranks of the shifty loci. In the Norse tales he thoroughly preserves his saintly character. Nor was it only gods that walked among men. In the Norse mythology, Frigga, Odin's wife, who knew beforehand all that was to happen, and Freja, the goddess of love and plenty, were prominent figures, and often trod the earth. The three Norns or Fates, who sway the weirds of men, and spin their destinies at Mimir's well of knowledge, were awful venerable powers, to whom the heathen world looked up with love and adoration and awe. To that love and adoration and awe, throughout the Middle Age, one woman, transfigured into a divine shape, succeeded by a sort of natural rite, and round the Virgin Mary's blessed head a halo of lovely tales of divine help beams with soft radiance as a crown bequeathed to her by the ancient goddesses. She appears as divine mother, spinner, and helpful virgin, Virge Sacrable. Flowers and plants bear her name. In England one of our commonest and prettiest insects is still called after her, but which belonged to Freja, the heathen lady, long before the western nations had learned to adore the name of the mother of Jesus. Footnote. So also Orion's belt was called by the Norsemen, Frigga's spindle, or rock, Frigar rock. In modern Swedish, Frigarok, where the old goddess holds her own. But in Danish, Maria rock, our lady's rock, or spindle. Thus, too, Karlavang, the car of men, or heroes, who rode with Odin, which we call Charles Wayne, thus keeping something at least of the old name, though none of its meaning, became in Scotland Peter's plough, from the Christian saint, just as Orion's sword became Peter's staff. But what do Lady Landers and Lady Ellison mean as applied to the ladybird in Scotland? The reader of these tales will meet, in that of The Lassie and Her Godmother, number 27, with the Virgin Mary in a purely mythic character, as the majestic guardian of sun, moon, and stars, combined with that of a helpful kindly woman, who, while she knows how to punish a fault, knows also how to reconcile and forgive. The Norseman's god was a god of battles, and victory his greatest gift to men. But this was not the only aspect under which the great father was revered. Not victory in the fight alone, but every other good gift came down from him and from the Azer. Odin's supreme will was that treasure-house of bounty towards which, in one shape or the other, all mortal desires turned, and out of its abundance showers of mercy and streams of divine favor constantly poured down to refresh the weary race of men. All these blessings and mercies, nay, their very source itself, the ancient language bound up in a single word, which, however expressive it may still be, has lost much of the fullness of its meaning in its descent to these later times. This word was wish, which originally meant the perfect ideal, the actual fruition of all joy and desire, and not, as now, the empty longing for the object of our desires. 
From this original abstract meaning, it is but a step to pass to the concrete, to personify the idea, to make it an immortal essence, an attribute of the divinity, another name for the greatest of all gods himself. And so we find a host of passages in early writers, D.M., page 126 and following, where they are cited at length, in every one of which God or Odin might be substituted for wish with perfect propriety. Here we read how the wish has hands, feet, power, sight, toil, and art. How he works in labors, shapes and masters, inclines his ear, thinks, swears, curses, and rejoices, adopts children, and takes men into his house, behaves in short as a being of boundless power and infinite free will. Still more, he rejoices in his own works as in a child, and thus appears in a thoroughly patriarchal point of view, as the Lord of creation, glorifying in his handiwork, as the father of a family in early times was glad at heart when he reckoned his children as arrows in his quiver, and beheld his house full of a long line of retainers and dependents. For this attribute of the great father, for Odin as the god of wish, the Edda uses the word oski, which literally expresses the masculine personification of wish, and it passed on and added the works wish as a prefix to a number of others, to signify that they stood in a peculiar relation to that great giver of all good. Thus we have oskastein, or wishing stone, i.e., a stone which plays the part of a divining rod, and reveals secrets and hidden treasure, oskabir, a fair wind, a wind as fair as man's heart could wish it, oskbarn and oskabarn, a child after one's heart, an adopted child, as when the younger Edda tells us that all those who die in battle are Odin's choice bairns, his adopted children, those on whom he has set his heart, an expression which, in their turn, was taken by the Icelandic Christian writers to express the relation existing between God and the baptized. And, though last, not least, Oskamer, wish maidens, another name for the Valkyries, Odin's coarse choosers, who picked out the dead for him on the field of battle, and waited on the heroes of Valhalla. Again, the Edda is filled with choice things, possessing some mysterious power of their own, some virtue, as our older English would express it, which belong to this or that god, and are occasionally lent or lost. Thus Odin himself had a spear which gave victory to those on whose side it was hurled, Thor a hammer which destroyed the giants, hallowed vows, and returned of itself to his hand. He had a strength belt, too, which, when he girded it on, his god's strength waxed one half. Freyr had a sword which wielded itself, Freja a necklace which, like the cestus of Venice, inspired all hearts with love. Freyr, again, had a ship called Skithblathnir. She is so great that all the Aesir, with their weapons and war gear, may find room on board her, and as soon as the sail is set, she has a fair wind whither she shall go, and when there is no need for faring on the sea in her, she is made of so many things and with so much craft, that Freyr may hold her together like a cloth and keep her in his bag. Snarrow's Edda, Stockholm, 1842, translated by the writer. Of this kind, too, was the ring dropper which Odin had, and from which twelve other rings dropped every night, the apples which Idun, one of the goddesses, had, and of which, so soon as the Aesir ate, they became young again, the helm which Ogier, the sea-giant, had, which struck terror into all antagonists, like the Aegis of Athene, and that wonderful mill which the mythical Frodi owned, of which we shall shortly speak. Now let us see what traces of this great god wish and his choice barons and wishing things we can find in these tales, faint echoes of a mighty heathen voice, 
which once proclaimed the goodness of the great Father in the blessings which he bestowed on his chosen sons. We shall not have long to seek. In the tale number twenty, when Shortshanks meets those three old crook-backed hags who have only one eye, which he snaps up and gets first a sword that puts a whole army to flight, be it ever so great, we have the one-eyed Odin degenerated into an old hag, or rather, by no uncommon process, we have an old witch fused by a popular tradition into a mixture of Odin and the three Nornir. Again, when he gets that wondrous ship, which can sail over fresh water and salt water, and over high hills and deep dales, and which is so small that he can put it into his pocket, and yet, when he came to use it, could hold five hundred men, we have plainly the skith Blathnir of the Edda to the very life. So also in the best wish, number thirty-six, the whole groundwork of this story rests on this old belief, and when we meet that pair of old scissors that cuts all manner of fine clothes out of the air, that tablecloth which covers itself with the best dishes you could think of, as soon as it was spread out, and that tap which, as soon as it was turned, poured out the best of mead and wine, we have plainly another form of Frodi's wishing quern. Another recollection of these things of choice about which the old mythology has so much to tell. Of the same kind are the tablecloth, the ram, and the stick in the lad who went to the north wind, number thirty-four, and the rings in the three princesses of Whiteland, number twenty-six, and the Soraya Mariah Castle, number fifty-six. In the first of these stories, too, we find those three brothers who have stood on a moor these hundred years fighting about a hat, a cloak, and a pair of boots, which had the virtue of making him who wore them invisible. Choice things which will again remind the reader of the Nibelungen lead, of the way in which Siegfried became possessed of the famous hoard of gold, and how he got that cap of darkness which was so useful to him in his remaining exploits. So again in the blue belt, number 22, what is that belt which, when the boy girded it on, he felt as strong as if he could lift the whole hill, but Thor's choice belt? And what is the daring boy himself, who overcomes the troll, but Thor himself, as engaged in one of his adventures with the giants? So, too, in Little Annie the Goose Girl, number 59, the stone which tells the prince all the secrets of his brides is plainly the old Oskastein, or wishing stone. These instances will suffice to show the prolonged faith in wish, and his choice things, a belief which, though so deeply rooted in the north, we have already traced to its home in the east, whence it stretches itself from pole to pole, and reappears in every race. We recognize in it the wishing cap of Fortunatus, which is a Celtic legend, in the cornucopia of the Romans, in the great Amalthea among the Greeks, in the wishing cow and wishing tree of the Hindus, in the pumpkin tree of the West Indian Anansi stories, in the cow of the Servian legends, who spins out yarn out of her ear, in the sampo of the Finns, and in all these stories of cups and glasses and horns and rings and swords, seized by some bold spirit in the midst of a fairy revel, or earned by some kind deed rendered by mortal hand to one of the good folk in her hour of need, and with which the luck, see the well-known story of the luck of Eden Hall, of that mortal's house was ever afterwards bound up, stories with which the local traditions of all lands are full, but which all pay unconscious homage to the worship of that great God, of whom so many heathen hearts so often turned as the divine realizer of their prayers, and the giver of all good things, until they came at last to make an idol out of their hopes and prayers, and to immortalize the very wish itself. Again, of all beliefs that in which man has, at all times of his history, been most prone to set faith, 
is that of a golden age of peace and plenty, which had passed away, but which might be expected to return. Such a period was looked for when Augustus closed the temple of Janus, and peace, though perhaps not plenty, reigned over what the proud Roman called the habitable world. Such a period the early Christian expected when the Savior was born, in the reign of that very Augustus. And such a period some, whose thoughts were more set on earth than heaven, have hoped for ever since, with a hope which, though deferred for eighteen centuries, has not made their hearts sick. Such a period of peace and plenty, such a golden time, the Norseman could tell of in his mythic Frodi's reign, when gold, or Frodi's meal, as it was called, was so plentiful that golden armlets lay untouched from year's end to year's end on the king's highway, and the fields bore crops unsown. Here in England, the Anglo-Saxon Bede, History of 216, knew how to tell the same story of Edwin, the Northumbrian king, and when Alfred came to be mythic, the same legend was passed on from Edwin to the West Saxon monarch. The remembrance of the bountiful Frodi, echoed in the songs of German poets long after the story which made him so bountiful had been forgotten. But the Norse skalds could tell not only the story of Frodi's wealth and bounty, but also of his downfall and ruin. In Frodi's house were two maidens of that old giant race, Benja and Menja. These daughters of the giant he had bought as slaves, and he made them grind his quern, or handmill, grotty, out of which he used to grind peace and gold. Even in that golden age one sees there were slaves, and Frodi, however bountiful to his thanes and people, was a hard taskmaster to his giant handmaidens. He kept them to the mill, nor gave them longer rest than the cuckoo's note lasted, or they could sing a song. But that quern was such that it ground anything that the grinder chose, though until then it had ground nothing but gold and peace. So the maidens ground and ground, and one sang their piteous tale in a strain worthy of Aeschylus, as the other worked. They prayed for rest and pity, but Frodi was deaf. Then they turned in giant mood, and ground no longer peace and plenty, but fire and war. Then the corn went fast and furious, and that very night came Mysing, the sea-rover, and slew Frodi and all his men, and carried off the corn. And so Frodi's peace ended. The maidens the sea-rover took with him, and when he got on the high seas he bade them grind salt. So they ground, and at midnight they asked if he had not salt enough, but he bade them still grind on. So they ground till the ship was full and sank, mising, maids, and mill, and all, and that's why the sea is salt. Perhaps of all the tales in this volume, none could be selected as better proving the toughness of the traditional belief than number two, which tells why the sea is salt. The notion of the arch-enemy of God and man, or a fallen angel, to whom power was permitted at certain times for an all-wise purpose by the great ruler of the universe, was as foreign to the heathendom of our ancestors as his name was outlandish and strange to their tongue. This notion Christianity brought with it from the east, and though it is a plant which has struck deep roots, grown distorted and awry, and borne a bitter crop of superstition, it required all the authority of the church to prepare the soil at first for its reception. To the notion of good necessarily follows that of evil. The eastern mind, with its Ormuzd and Araman, is full of such dualism, and from that hour, when a more than mortal eye saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven, St. Luke 10.18, the kingdom of darkness, the abode of Satan and his bad spirits, was established in direct opposition to the kingdom of the Savior and his angels. The North had its own notion on this point. Its mythology was not without its own dark powers, but though they too were ejected and dispossessed, they, according to that mythology, had rights of their own. 
to them belonged all the universe that had not been seized and reclaimed by the younger race of Odin and Aesir. And though this upstart dynasty, as the frost giants in Promethean phrase would have called it, well knew that Hell, one of this giant progeny, was fated to do them all mischief and to outlive them, they took her and made her queen of Niflheim and mistress over nine worlds. There, in a bitterly cold place, she received the souls of all who died of sickness or old age. Care was her bed, hunger her dish, starvation her knife. Her walls were high and strong, and her bolts and bars huge. Half blue was her skin, and half the color of human flesh, a goddess easy to know, and in all things very stern and grim. Edda, chapter 34, English translation. But though severe, she was not an evil spirit. She only received those who died as no Norseman wished to die. For those who fell on the gory battlefield, or sank beneath the waves, Valhalla was prepared, and endless mirth and bliss with Odin. Those who went to hell, who were rather unfortunate than wicked, who died before they could be killed. But when Christianity came in and ejected Odin and his crew of false divinities, declaring them to be lying gods and demons, then hell fell with the rest. But fulfilling her fate, outlived them. From a person she became a place, and all the northern nations, from the Goth to the Norsemen, agreed in believing hell to be the abode of the devil and his wicked spirits, the place prepared from the beginning for the everlasting torments of the damned. One curious fact connected with this explanation of hell's origin will not escape the reader's attention. The Christian notion of hell is that of a place of heat, for in the east, whence Christianity came, heat is often an intolerable torment, and cold, on the other hand, everything that is pleasant and delightful. But to the dweller in the north, Heat brings with it sensations of joy and comfort, and life without fire has a dreary outlook. So their hell ruled in a cold region over those who were cowards by implication, while the mead cup went round and huge logs blazed and crackled in Valhalla for the brave and beautiful who had dared to die on the field of battle. But under Christianity the extremes of heat and cold have met, and hell, the cold uncomfortable goddess, is now our hell, where flames and fire abound, and where the devils abide in everlasting flame. Still, popular tradition is tough, and even after centuries of Christian teaching, the Norse peasant, in his popular tales, can still tell of hell as a place where firewood is wanted at Christmas, and over which a certain air of comfort breathes, though, as in the goddess Hell's Halls, meat is scarce. The following passage from Why the Sea is Salt, number two, will sufficiently prove this. Well, here is the flitch, said the rich brother, and now go straight to hell. What I have given my word to do, I must stick to, said the other. So he took the flitch and set off. He walked the whole day, and at dusk he came to a place where he saw a very bright light. Maybe this is the place, said the man to himself. So he turned aside, and the first thing he saw was an old, old man, with a long white beard, who stood in an outhouse, hewing wood for the Christmas fire. Good even, said the man with the flitch. The same to you. Whither are you going so late? said the man. Oh, I'm going to hell, if I only knew the right way, answered the poor man. Well, you're not far wrong, for this is hell, said the old man. When you get inside, they will be all for buying your flitch, for meat is scarce in hell. But mind you, don't sell it, unless you get the hand quern which stands behind the door for it. When you come out, I'll teach you how to handle the quern, for it's good to grind almost anything." This, too, is the proper place to explain the conclusion of that intensely heathen tale, The Master Smith, number 16. We have already seen how the Savior and St. Peter supply, in its beginning, the place of Odin and some other heathen god. 
but when the smith sets out with the feeling that he has done a silly thing in quarrelling with the devil, having already lost his hope of heaven, this tale assumes a still more heathen shape. According to the old notion, those who were not Odin's guests went either to Thor's house, who had all the thralls, or to Frigia, who even claimed a third part of the slain on every battlefield with Odin, or to Hel, the cold comfortless goddess already mentioned, who was still no tormentor, though she ruled over nine worlds, and though her walls were high and her bolts and bars huge, traits which come out in the Master Smith, number 16, when the devil, who here assumes Hel's place, orders the watch to go back and lock up all the nine locks on the gates of Hel, a lock for each of the goddess's nine worlds, and put a padlock on besides. In the twilight between heathendom and Christianity, in that half-Christian, half-heathen consciousness, which this tale reveals, heaven is the preferable abode, as Valhalla was of yore, but rather than be without a house to one's head after death, hell was not to be despised, though, having behaved ill to the ruler of one, and actually quarrelled with the master of the other, the smith was naturally anxious on the matter. This notion of different abodes in another world, not necessarily places of torment, comes out, too, in Not a Pin to Choose Between Them, number 24, where Peter, the second husband of the silly Goody, goes out begging from house to house in paradise. For the rest, whenever the devil appears in these tales, it is not at all as the arch-enemy, as the subtle spirit of the Christian's faith, but rather as one of the old giants, supernatural and hostile indeed to man, but simple and easily deceived by a cunning reprobate, whose superior intelligence he learns to dread, for whom he feels himself no match, and whom, finally, he will receive in hell at no price. We shall have to notice some of the other characteristics of this race of giants a little further on, but certainly no greater proof can be given of the small hold which the Christian devil has taken of the Norse mind than the heathen aspect under which he constantly appears, and the ludicrous way in which he is always outwitted. We have seen how our Lord and the saints succeeded to Odin and his children in the stories which told of their wanderings on earth, to warn the wicked or to help the good. We have seen how the kindliness and helpfulness of the ancient goddesses fell like a royal mantle round the form of the Virgin Mary. We have seen, too, on the other hand, how the procession of the Almighty God degenerated into the infernal midnight hunt. We have now to see what became of the rest of the power of the goddesses, of all that might which was not absorbed into the glory of the Blessed Virgin. We shall not have far to seek. No reader of early medieval chronicles and sermons can fail to have been struck with the many passages which ascribe majesty and power to beings of a woman's sex. Now it is a heathen goddess as Diana, now some half-historical figure as Bertha, now a mythical being as Holda, now Herodias, now Sadia, now Domina Abundia, or Dame Habond. A very short investigation will serve to identify the two ancient goddesses Frigga and Frigia, with all these leaders of a midnight host. Just as Odin was banished from day to darkness, so the two great heathen goddesses, fused into one uncanny shape, were supposed to ride the air at night. Medieval chroniclers, writing in bastard Latin, and following the example of classical authors, when they had to find a name for this demon goddess, chose, of course, Diana, the heathen huntress, the moon goddess, and the ruler of the night. In the same way, when they threw Odin's name into a Latin shape, he, the god of wit and will, as well as power and victory, became Mercury. As for Herodias, not the mother but the daughter who danced, she must have made a deep impression on the mind of the early Middle Age, for she was supposed to have been cursed after the beheading of John the Baptist, 
and to have gone on dancing forever. When heathendom fell, she became confounded with the ancient goddesses, and thus we find her, sometimes among the crew of the wild huntsmen, sometimes, as we see in the passages below, in company with, or in the place of, Diana, Holda, Satya, and Abundia, at the head of a bevy of women, who met at certain places to celebrate unholy rites and mysteries. As for Holda, Satya, and Abundia, the kind, the satisfying, and the abundant, they are plainly names of good rather than evil powers. They are ancient epithets drawn from the bounty of the good lady, and attest the feeling of respect which still clung to them in the popular mind. As was the case whenever Christianity was brought in, the country folk, always averse to change, as compared with the more lively and intelligent dwellers in towns, still remained more or less heathen, and to this day they preserve unconsciously many superstitions which can be traced up in lineal descent to their old belief. In many ways does the old divinity peep out under the new superstition. The long train, the midnight feast, the good lady who presides, the bounty and abundance which her votaries fancied would follow in her footsteps, all belong to the ancient goddess. Most curious of all is the way in which all these traditions from different countries insist on the third part of the earth, the third child born, the third soul as belonging to the good lady, who leads the revel, for this right of a third, or even a half, was one which Freja possessed. But Freja is most famous for the Azenjor. She has that bower in heaven hight Folkvenger, and whithersoever she rideth to the battle, there hath she one half of the slain, but Odin the other half. Again, when she fares abroad, she drives two cats and sits in a car, and she lends an easy ear to the prayers of men. Snaro's Edda, Dasson's Translation, page 29, Stockholm, 1842. We have got, then, the ancient goddesses identified as evil influences, and as the leader of a midnight band of women, who practiced secret and unholy rites. This leads us at once to witchcraft. In all ages and in all races, this belief in sorcery has existed. Men and women practiced it alike, but in all times female sorcerers have predominated. This was natural enough. In those days women were priestesses. They collected drugs and simples. Women alone knew the virtues of plants. Those soft hands spun linen, made lint, and bound wounds. Women in the earliest times with which we are acquainted with our forefathers alone knew how to read and write, only they could carve the mystic runes, only they could chant the charm so potent to allay the wounded warrior's smart and pain. The men were busy out of doors with ploughing, hunting, barter, and war. In such an age the sects which possessed by natural right book-learning, physic, soothsaying, and incantation even when they used these mysteries for good purposes, were but a step from sin. The same soft white hand that bound the wound and scraped the lint, the same gentle voice that sung the mystic rune, that helped the child-bearing woman or drew the arrowhead from the dying champion's breast, the same bright eye that gazed up to heaven in ecstasy through the sacred grove and read the will of the gods when the mystic tablets and rune-carved lots were cast, all these, if the will were bad, if the soothsayer passed into the false prophetess, the leech into a poisoner, and the priestess into a witch, were as potent and terrible for ill as they had once been powerful for good. In all the Indo-European tribes, therefore, women, and especially old women, have practiced witchcraft from the earliest times, and Christianity found them wherever it advanced. But Christianity, as it placed mankind upon a higher platform of civilization, increased the evil which it found, and when it expelled the ancient goddesses, and confounded them as demons with Diana and Herodias, 
it added them and their votaries to the old class of malevolent sorcerers. There was but one step, but a simple act of the will, between the Norn and the Hag, even before Christianity came in. As soon as it came, down went goddess, Valkyrie, Norn, priestess, and soothsayer, into that unholy deep where the heathen hags and witches had their being. And, as Christianity gathered strength, developed its dogmas and worked out its faith, fancy, tradition, leechcraft, poverty, and idleness, produced that unhappy class, the medieval witch, the persecution of which is one of the darkest pages in religious history. It is curious indeed to trace the belief in witches through the Middle Age, and to mark how it increases in intensity and absurdity. At first, as we have seen in the passages quoted, the superstition seemed comparatively harmless, and though the witches themselves may have believed in their unholy power, there were not wanting divines who took a common-sense view of the matter, and put the absurdity of their pretensions to a practical proof. Such was that good parish priest who asked, when an old woman of his flock insisted that she had been in his house with the company of the good lady, and had seen him naked and covered him up, How then did you get in when all the doors were locked? We can get in, she said, even if the doors are locked. Then the priest took her into the chancel of the church, locked the door, and gave her a sound thrashing with the pastoral staff, calling out, Out with you, lady witch! But as she could not, he sent her home, saying, See how foolish you are to believe in such empty dreams. But as the church increased in strength, as heresies arose, and consequent persecution, then the secret meetings of these sectarians, as we should now call them, were identified by the hierarchy with the rites of sorcery and magic, and with the relics of the worship of the old gods. By the time, too, that the hierarchy was established, that belief in the fallen angel, the arch-fiend, the devil, originally so foreign to the nations of the West, had become thoroughly engrafted on the popular mind, and a new element of wickedness and superstition was introduced at these unholy festivals. About the middle of the thirteenth century we find the mania of persecuting heretics invading the tribes of the Teutonic race from France and Italy, backed by all the power of the Pope. Like jealousy, persecution too often makes the meat it feeds on, and many silly if not harmless superstitions were rapidly put under the ban of the Church. Now the good lady and her train began to recede, only they fill up the background while the Prince of Darkness steps, dark and terrible, in front, and soon draws after him the following of the ancient goddess. Now we hear stories of demoniac possession. Now the witches adore a demon of the other sex. With the male element and its harsher, sterner nature, the sinfulness of these unholy assemblies is infinitely increased, folly becomes guilt, and guilt crime. From the middle of the 14th to the middle of the 17th century, the history of Europe teems with processes against witches and sorcerers. Before the Reformation it reached its height, in the Catholic world, with the famous bull of Innocent VIII in 1484, the infamous Malleus Maleficarum, the first of a long list of witch-finding books, and the zeal with which the state lent all the terrors of the law to assist the ecclesiastical inquisitors. Before the tribunals of these inquisitors in the fifteenth century, innumerable victims were arraigned on the double charge of heresy and sorcery, for the crimes ran in couples, both being children and sworn servants of the devil. Would that the historian could say that with the era of the Reformation these abominations ceased. The Roman hierarchy, with her bulls and inquisitors, had sown a bitter crop, which both she and the Protestant churches were destined to reap but in no part of the world were the laborers more eager and willing, when the fields were black to harvest, 
than in those very reformed communities which had just shaken off the yoke of Rome, and which had sprung in many cases from the very heretics whom she had persecuted and burnt, accusing them at the same time of the most malignant sorceries. Their excuse is that no one is before his age. The intense personality given to the devil in the Middle Age had possessed the whole mind of Europe. We must take them as we find them, with their bright fancy, their earnest faith, their stern fanaticism, their revolting superstition, just as when we look upon a picture we know that those brilliant hues and tones, that spirit which informs the whole, could never be were it not for the vulgar earths and soil out of which the glorious work of art is mixed and made. Strangely monotonous are all the witch-trials of which Europe has so many to show. At first the accused denies, then under torture she confesses, then relapses and denies, tortured again she confesses again, amplifies her story, and accuses others. When given to the stake, she not seldom asserts all her confessions to be false, which is ascribed to the power which the fiend still has over her. Then she is burnt and her ashes given to the winds. Those who wish to read one unexampled, perhaps for barbarity and superstition, and more curious from the rest from the prominence given in it to a man, may find it in the trial of Dr. Fion, the Scotch wizard, quote, which doctor was registered to the devil, that sundry times preached at North Brack, North Berwick in East Lothian, Kirk, to a number of notorious witches, end quote. But we advise no one to venture on a perusal of this tract, who is not prepared to meet with the most unutterable accusations and crimes, the most cruel tortures, and the most absurd confessions, followed as usual by the stoutest denial of all that had been confessed, when torture had done her worst on poor human nature, and the soul reasserted at the last her supremacy over the body. One characteristic of all these witch-trials is the fact that in spite of their unholy connection and intrigues with the evil one, no witch ever attained to wealth and station by the aid of the Prince of Darkness. The pleasure to do ill is all the pleasure they feel. This fact alone might have opened the eyes of their persecutors, for if the devil had the worldly power which they represented him to have, he might at least have raised some of his votaries to temporal rank, and to the pomps and the vanities of this world. An old German proverb expresses this notorious fact by saying that every seven years a witch is three halfpence richer, and so, with all the unholy means of hell at their command, they dragged out their lives, along with their black cats, in poverty and wretchedness. To this fate at last came the worshippers of the great goddess Freja, whom our forefathers adored as the goddess of love and plenty, and whose car was drawn by those animals which popular superstition has ever since assigned to the old witch of our English villages. End of section 6, part 1